Blood Brothers Podcast, a Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there, and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Didi Hussain. Before I introduce today's guest, a reminder to the avid podcast listeners that you can find the Blood Brothers podcast on all major audio platforms. And of course, the YouTube followers and viewers, please subscribe to our channel. Uh, today's guest is someone who's making their second appearance on the podcast, uh, a dear brother, colleague, business partner, and the editor-in-chief of Five Pillars, who has just gone back from Afghanistan, Russia Muhammad Saleh. Russia Sanika. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm a bit sick, yeah. <laughs> having come back from like a, a month away in different climate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, inshallah, a few more days I'll be better. Are you glad to be back? Uh, mixed feelings. You know, obviously I was away for a while, so it's, um, you know, about the right time to come back because of family and stuff like that. But also sad to leave Afghanistan. I had a good time out there. Okay. And alhamdulillah, I'm going to go back. I mean, alhamdulillah, you know, your trip, which is around about 16 days, was it around about that? It turned into nearly... Over three weeks. Oh, over three yeah. weeks, okay. So so yeah. that's, that's a fair amount of time to have spent in a new Afghanistan, an mm. Afghanistan which currently has the new Islamic administration of the Taliban or the Islamic Emirates of Afghanistan. And I guess one of the things our listeners and viewers are going to want to know is very basic stuff. But before we get to the environment, mm. tell us a bit about how the, the trip itself was arranged. Okay, so I arranged a trip through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Kabul. And they basically told me to go to Doha in Qatar to get my visa. And then I would get on a flight from Doha to Kabul, which is a special flight, not a commercial flight, for uh, dignitaries, for aid workers, for journalists. So uh, I, I got on that flight and uh, that's how I got there. So getting into the country was reasonably easy, but mainly because I had that direct contact with somebody in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Kabul. So did you actually go into their consulate in Qatar? Yes. What they, flag did they have up there? Well, I've never got to the bottom of this, but they actually had the old flag. Okay. They didn't have the new Taliban flag yeah. with the Shahada on it. Yeah. And I never, I mean, I just thought it was a bit impolite to ask because I, was, okay. I wasn't actually in the country at that point. Okay. So I just wanted to get the visa. <laughs> so I didn't ask the question. Okay. And in terms of when you walked into the building, did you see bearded men in turbans or was it clean shaven men? Or it was did you see mixture. any women? No, there was no women in there. But to be honest, uh, Dilia, I only saw about three or four people because it was a weekend. So how and they the- came in specially for me to give me the visa. So there was an Indian guy, okay. uh, Indian Muslim guy from Kerala, okay. who was uh, helping out in the embassy. And there was a couple of Afghans. One was clean shaven, one had a big beard. Okay, interesting. And the flight itself, so the flight from Doha to Kabul, how was that flight? Who were you on the plane with? Very few people. I think um, probably about 40, 40 passengers. Uh, the aid workers, a few foreign journalists, uh, a few Taliban dignitaries. Okay. A massive plane could have taken about 300 people. Speak to anyone? The flight. No, I didn't actually. Okay. Uh, well, I, I did. Yes, I did. Uh, getting on board, but not an in-depth conversation. Uh, everyone was keeping themselves to themselves. But the flight from, from Doha to Kabul is amazing. You fly over like desolate mountain scenery, southern Iran, you know, western Afghanistan. You know, it's, I mean, I was thinking to myself, no wonder Osama bin Laden hid from the Americans for so long because it's like mountainous, desolate, barren, amazing kind of scenery. Amazing when you're on a plane, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you get lost in there. Yeah, you okay. get lost for years. And you know... 
we've been fed, and when I say we, we're to, I'm talking Muslims, non-Muslims alike. We've been fed a narrative from the mainstream media, from our politicians, from our respected governments for the best part of two decades. That the Taliban are a bunch of crazy Sharia-driven, Sharia uh, head-chopping, mm. uh, anti-women organisation. And, and the kind of society that they bring to Afghanistan is a very kind of medieval one that's dated. Did you sense that when you first landed there? No, uh, no, quite the opposite. I had a very good experience. Now, some would say you had that good experience because they invited you into the country, that you're a foreign journalist, they're treating you better than everyone else. I can only speak from what I experienced. And I think most days I was meeting Taliban, whether it was in the ministries, applying for my work permit and having to hang around for ages so you get chatting to people, um, high officials, as well as just foot soldiers, mm. At the checkpoints, uh, I went to Jalalabad, about three hours away from Kabul. So I was meeting Taliban every day. And my impressions of them were, I mean, first of all, they're not getting paid loads of money. And Are they getting paid any money? I don't think so. Most of the foot soldiers are getting nothing. I was giving them, you know, the foot soldiers, I must admit, I was giving them tips at times just to kind of like, you know, just, you know, they didn't ask for it. But my, my driver was saying to me, they're not asking for it, but these guys need a shower. And they need some 100%. food. Um, if you can just give them a little bit, you know, that would be nice. It's not a bribe or anything like that. But literally, they're dirt poor. And these guys are turning up day after day to man these checkpoints to keep the country safe. And they're not getting paid anything. Okay. Who would turn up for no money for Hamid Karzai or Ashraf Ghani? Absolutely nobody. Now, there's going to be Muslims, especially those who are... Islamically inclined, those who may fall under the quote-unquote bracket mm. Islamist mind thinking, mindset. I don't like using that term, but people who were excited naturally that there is a what appears to be an Islamic administration in Afghanistan. There may be a resemblance of what could possibly be an Islamic society that's reflective of the social and customs of Afghanistan. Can I ask you random things like, did you hear much music being played on the streets? No, from shops or stalls or. None whatsoever. Men smoking cigarettes? Yeah, men do smoke. But you've been to like Asia and Africa, right? Everyone now, smokes. Now, I thought they might be strict on those things. You know, the Taliban also strict on cigarettes? No. Clean-shaven men? Lots of clean-shaven people. Okay. Um, one of the things that you posted a status about, which is quite interesting, was the absence of women in the public space. Yeah. Like, like, like if they were, they'd be in a building that's dedicated to women. Other than that, then there's no billboards, there's no mannequins, no. there's no commercialized. I think the Taliban didn't invent that. You know, <laughs> Afghanistan has been a conservative and I would say patriarchal society for a long time. The Taliban did not invent this. Um, however, yeah, you, you go into ministries, you'd see no women. I saw one woman in a ministry and she was kind of sneaked in. She used to work there and the guys were just helping her because she wanted to serve the nation. Mm. So she wasn't actually supposed to be there, but she was there. <laughs> Um, you don't see that many women on the streets. There were a few men, women. When we were vox popping people... How did that make you feel, by the way? I, I, I mean, look... Cause when it, you, it was normal in Afghanistan. No, but when, 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 look, when I go to Bangladesh... You've been to way more Muslim countries than me, but when mm. we've been to Muslim countries, we yeah. do see women in the public yeah, space. of course. We see them in the bazaars, we see them in the shopping centres, we see them in most places like yeah. we kind of do in the West, but perhaps less so. Turkey's an exception, Morocco's maybe an exception, but other than that, you still see women... To some degree in the public space. Yeah. Did that, did you, were you a bit estranged by that? Dilly, I'll be honest, I, I'm kind of like um, a bloke, you know, like a red blooded bloke. It doesn't really, 
it doesn't really kind of uh, phase me. I'll be honest. I'm just being honest. Um, if I don't see women in the public space, I'm not going to notice it necessarily. Okay. You know, I'm not okay. looking out for it or something okay. like that. Okay. And in Afghanistan, it comes very normalized. Like you're in Turkey or Tunisia, you see women everywhere. Yeah. And that's normal. And for me, having been in Afghanistan for three weeks, it became normal not to see women. But is that, However, is, I, is that a new normal under Taliban? Are you saying that's... A, that's no, no, I think it's, it's just always been a conservative society. And Kabul is the most liberal place in the whole of Afghanistan. However, given... I've said all that, but when you go into like private hospitals or private school, private universities, you do see women. Mm. I was I was sick for three days. Mm. I went into a hospital. Uh, there were nurses there. There were women behind reception. So women are working and they are studying. And there's no Taliban ban on women working or women going to school, girls going to school. However, if you ask me, is it a massive priority for them? Then no, it isn't. I mean, I went to the ministry of, uh, Amabil Maruf or Nahya Munkar. Yeah, uh, yeah so uh, virtue and vice ministry, whatever yeah. they call it. And that was previously the women's ministry. They abolished it and made it into, into okay. Amabil Maruf. So... Yeah, it's not a massive priority for them okay. to, to get loads of women into schools or girls into schools and get women into the workforce. It just isn't. But at the same time, there is no ban either. Okay. I guess I guess more so what I'm trying to say is this, right? And I appreciate all of that that you've said. When we were chatting on our WhatsApp group and we were exchanging voice notes throughout, mm. the, throughout your entire trip and, and you know, you were giving me updates because I was curious as well. How What is Afghanistan like and how yeah. and. We come from the West and there's lots of women around. Yeah. And even when I go to Bangladesh, the, the, the country of my parents' uh, birth, I see women. So sometimes when you enter a society where there's little to no women, some men will notice it. Others will just crack on with life. Will you just crack I on just with life? I just cracked on. But Western, women, Western Muslim women would probably find it hard in Afghanistan. It's not as... Uh, I think if they went to a place like Turkey or, you know, it'll be easier for them. Mm. Uh, there, I think... Um, I mean, it, it all depends on the individual, but I think, yeah, a lot of our sisters, mm. they're quite modern, aren't they? I and think a lot got, of our brothers would struggle in Afghanistan. Yeah, I think they would, yeah. I think a lot yeah. of our brothers would struggle. All the brothers who are, you know, they pray their salah, they take the religion seriously, but they like doing a bit of shisha in the weekend, they'll, they'll struggle. If you want, like, uh, an economically comfortable life, and all the comforts of life, then Afghanistan ain't the place for you. So it's not the place for eateries and going out for a gourmet burger? Nah, no, no. I mean, everyone, after, after nightfall, everyone just goes home, watches Turkish cereals. Ser- you know, that's what they love, Ertegrul and all that oh, kind of stuff. Oh, they love it there yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, there's no, there's basically no nightlife whatsoever. Did you, did you get to speak to many Afghans about Erdogan and the Turks? No, I didn't. I didn't ask those questions okay. to be honest. Because there was a bit of friction over the control and over the airport. Of the airport, you, of the airport wasn't it? They were trying to broker. I think generally Afghans are just desperate for foreign help because there's no cash in the economy. There's sanctions. Their assets are frozen, and I think they would take help from anybody, probably including the West as well at the moment. Okay. And you know, when you got to Kabul, did you still see the old flag in places? No. You just see the Taliban flag everywhere. So the, I mean, the, it was on sale. I was going to buy one, but I thought if I buy one, put it in the suitcase, I'm going to get done by schedule seven. <laughs> so I, I didn't. I didn't buy it. But you see it all over the place. Beautiful flag, by the way. Mm. Uh, you know, white flag, Shahada. Yeah, Shahada, yeah. yeah. And um, engaging everyday Taliban officials of different levels, right? Yeah. Let's start with the kind of low level, low ranking soldiers, yeah. right? What were they like? Very talkative, very curious about me. I think people were generally curious because when they see a foreigner, they, they just think 
kafir, yeah. non-Muslim. <laughs> and uh, so they were intrigued that I was a Muslim, you know, and... Um, but the Muslim and Muslim journalists, Al Jazeera, the Turks, they had Muslim journalists. Yeah, they do, uh, but most most of the journalists there are Western journalists, and obviously they go there with an agenda to of demonize course. the country. Many of them belong to defeated nations like Britain and America. So they were intrigued, and they were, they were very grateful, I thought, that a foreign Muslim journalist had come along and genuinely... I mean, I was no one's... I have to insist on saying this. While I was in Afghanistan, I wasn't 100% praising the Taliban or everything. Some people might think I was. But I was just giving them a fair crack of the whip, you know? And I wasn't um, concealing anything. I just told it how I, I saw it. And I think they were grateful that I did that. And they didn't impose any restrictions whatsoever on my reporting or anyone else's reporting, apart from one incident when a Taliban foot soldier... Uh, in Jalalabad or on the way to Jalalabad he checked my phone and I didn't appreciate that and I could have snitched on him but I'm not a snitch mm. um, and he would have got into trouble because mm. that was against Islamic Emirates policies mm. uh, Emirate policies uh, but apart from that you know you could you could say what you want okay and these everyday uh, rank and file soldiers were these were young men or teenagers you know I would say 18 to 25 most of the Taliban so most of, soldiers so, very young yeah so most of these guys most of these guys, and this is an admission that's been made by Zabiullah and other senior officials, that look, uh, Al-Mujahideen, many of them young men, were either born during or just after the invasion. Mm. They spent most of their lives seeing their countries being torn apart and then obviously raising arms to fight against the invaders. These guys aren't state makers. They're not, they're not mm. people who have policed societies and stuff like that. So give them a chance. Absolutely. Uh, that's why I didn't dob the guy in. Okay, but... Yeah. but, but uh, <laughs> On the checkpoint. But... Mm. 17, 18, 19 year old men Young lads You know Fiery Have a very kind of Did you not say Very polite Yeah uh, Excessively polite Even the guy That checked my phone Said sorry afterwards mm. You know And he was saying sorry While he was checking my phone Did you see, did you see any of them at work Maybe trying to enjoy Good forbid evil And doing stuff Did you see any of that You With, know To be honest Dilly They're not enforcing The Sharia Very strictly Because and I, I must say, I know a lot of uh, our Muslim brothers. Is alcohol sold anywhere in the country? No, at the I didn't moment? see any alcohol. Even in Western, even in, in hotels? In my hotel, my, I was staying in a hotel, Kabul Star Hotel. And that hotel, I subsequently found out, was full of Americans. It was full of parties. If it was dancing, How do you find your singing? That's not the first time you've rocked up in a hotel with Western journalists and guys. How do you end up rocking up in these hotels with these well, guys? Well, there was no one there when I got there. You know, okay. it, was, it was hardly anyone there whatsoever. It was a hotel, like 200 uh, rooms and about 10 guests. Quick one. When you went to Libya... Yeah, uh, you oh, that were... was a spy hotel. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I was trying to say. How did you... That was full. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's just obviously I needed to get... A, because I was new to the country, I said to my fixer, get me a safe hotel. Okay, fair You enough. know, I don't want to be exposed or anything like that. Because I was falling for the, you know, the BS, quite frankly, about this being a war zone as well. So I said, get me a safe hotel, you know, which is secure. So I went to one of the... The good hotels, not the best, but one of the good hotels. Was there alcohol there? No, no, there's no alcohol anywhere. I never saw any alcohol anywhere. But before, you know, during the occupation, I'm sure there was alcohol because some of the staff were showing me videos of dancing and singing and stage shows. Wow. And all the Americans were staying there and the aid workers, you know, and the journalists. So they were having a, a fine old time. Yeah. Um, did you mingle with many Western journalists during this No, show? there was a Swedish journalist. I, I didn't see any Americans or British. Uh, a couple of Scandinavian journalists, a few Chinese journalists. Who's the journalist I've got uh, a telling off? 
Uh, the journalist who got telling off? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sh- uh, okay, it was, I said he in the article, but it's actually a she. I was trying to throw people off the scent. Come on, we're on the uh, show now. We're French, can... uh, she was a French journalist. I don't know what her name was. France 24. Uh, no, um, uh, it's called Liberation newspaper, Liberation. Okay. Uh, and I think she might have worked for France 24 as well. Um, but yeah, she was basically, um, yeah, so uh, I'll name him if you want to. Uh, he no. might be a bit embarrassed, but... Uh, um, Abdul Kaha Balki, okay. uh, who is the um, foreign affairs spokesman, um, and he was—I think he, I think he might have lived in Australia at some point in his life. He's got an Aussie accent. Oh, the the, the brother's very well spoken in English. Yes, absolutely. He's, his English is better than his uh, diary yeah. or yeah, Pashtu, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Okay. And um, yeah, so he was basically saying to this uh, this—he was saying to me as well. He was addressing it to me as well. He was saying, "Look, you're welcome in our country. You can do whatever you want. You can go wherever you want." We're not going to censor you, but please respect Islamic red lines. Mm. Please do not lie. Do not go for sensationalist headlines. That's all we ask. Mm. And we're not even saying to you, you must do this. We're just beseeching you to do it. And, but he was obviously directing it towards her. And then he had a few kind of little barbs about, mm. about you know, Western journalists lying yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And then because she was French, he mentioned Panjshir, mm. where Ahmed Shah Massoud. Of course. Yeah, and Ahmed Shah Massoud was paid by the French. And the CIA have they come? They've come to an agreement now, though, right? There is, there's yeah, some, there's no war anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but basically, because she was French, he was saying to her, like, you know, because France has this love affair with the Masouds yeah, because yeah, they were funding him. Yeah, and like, you know, you, you maybe you can go to Panjshir and continue a lo- your love affair with the Masouds. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, she was like, you know, this got her back up a little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. and she gave gave a little bit back. He just smiled and just moved on. Good. Good. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. It was it was brilliant. I was chuckling to myself. The country beautiful? It is beautiful. I mean, unfortunately, um, I didn't travel. I was in Kabul 90% of the time. I went to Jalalabad. The ride from Kabul to Jalalabad is through mountain sceneries. Like, you know, you're snaking your way through mountain passes. It's everything you would have in your mind about, you know, like... Uh, if anyone's been to Peshawar in Pakistan mm. uh, and Jalalabad, that you know it's kind of just amazing Khyber Pass. It's not the Khyber Pass, but it's that kind of mountainous, mountainous terrain with roads, going yeah, with in, rivers and whatever. Okay. And it's just an amazing ride. That ride, which took about three hours for me, it took ten minutes, and we had a brilliant like a uh, fish breakfast on the way, which is, was just amazing with some green tea. And uh, yeah, just a beautiful country. But because the, of the difficulties of traveling with the checkpoints, mm. I didn't actually go anywhere else. Yeah. Um, because to get to Jalalabad should be three hours. It took us there and back. It took us all day. Wow. Simply because of the checkpoints. We must have gone through about 40 checkpoints. And the checkpoints are there because, I mean, to protect people, because Daesh, you know, yeah, ISIS-K, ISIS-K yeah. are very active in that region. And they're trying to kill people. Uh, main, they're targeting Shias, but they're also targeting hospitals and places like that. So that, that those were the reasons for the checkpoint. And, and I get that. I'm curious to know a few things. Um, First and foremost, how genuine do you think people's responses were to you when they were talking about the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, knowing that yeah. if they didn't... I mean, are they scared? Would they have said anything against the Taliban no, on camera? Um, I think on camera, obviously, I would say their, their answers were maybe 70% truthful. Okay. Not 100%. Off camera, they talked to me very candidly. So I have a good idea of what so, Afghans so, think. So tell me about the candid conversation, some of them. Uh, okay, so, all right. So in Kabul... How popular are the Taliban? Okay, in Kabul, I would say most people in Kabul do not support the Taliban. Okay. It's a liberal city. It's um, less religious than the rest of the country. It is secular by and large. Not everybody. Um, I went for Juma prayers 
Everyone turned up at the last minute. No one turned up for the chuppah. Mm. It, it got full, but people came, people left. I was a bit shocked. because. But they came though. They came, they came. But yeah, wherever I've been in the world, even in Britain, people people turn up for the chuppah. Of course, of course. Turks turn up yeah. half an hour, 45 minutes before yeah, the chuppah. That shocked me a little bit. Okay. Look, I, I think obviously, you know, I'm not an expert on Afghanistan. I was there for three weeks. But we're asking so you I'm not an expert. Based on your anecdotal I, I have seen stuff, sorry. Um, yeah, I would say in Kabul, I would say at least 60% of the population, they do not support the Taliban. Initially, they were very scared. Now they're not scared. No one's scared of the Taliban. The, unless, unless you have major blood on your hands, unless, unless you called in airstrikes against uh, civilians, then maybe you're scared. And maybe then there are reprisals mm. from the Taliban. If not from the high command, then definitely from the foot soldiers. And these people are being denounced by their neighbours as well. You know, people that occupy, that worked in Bagram Air Base and stuff mm. like that, you know. So, um, but generally we can say there's, a, there's an amnesty and people are not scared of the Taliban. And all those people who said, oh, we must come to the West because the Taliban are going to kill us. They're going to chop our heads off. They're all terrorists. I would say the majority of them were lying. They mm. wanted to get to the country for economic reasons. Mm. And that's why they came. But the Taliban were definitely not going to kill them. Okay. So on that basis... But, but sorry, before I finish off, I would say in the whole country, I would say the majority of people were against the occupation. The majority of people are much more conservative and religious than in Kabul. Mm. And the majority of people are, yeah, they're, they're looking forward to a new Islamic Afghanistan, but they have loads of worries about where the next meal is coming from. We're going to get to the economics uh, of the situation, but I just wanted to just ask, did you speak to any people about their views on Pakistan, India or Turkey? Not so much. I think I think what you have on Twitter and social media is this Afghan diaspora which is probably being funded by the cia quite frankly mm. you know uh, quite organized and they're blaming pakistan for everybody they call the taliban pakistanis mm. and they're racist they're, mm. they're, i mean they're collaborators they're traitors they're traitors and they're racist we're, um, we're gonna get to that so so, so no so, so so if you're anti-taliban it's very likely that you're anti-pakistan Possibly. I mean, I met a few people in the ministries who talked to me very... Con- and they still have their jobs, by the way. Mm. And they collaborated with the Americans. They were working for the Americans during that whole time. And they're still working in the ministries. Wow. The Taliban said to them, we forgive you. Um, we're not going to hold anything again. We need you guys to stay in the country to build the country. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, they were quite candid. Some of them were unrepentant. They were like, we did nothing wrong. Uh, the Americans were better than the Taliban. Some of them were like... We were dirt poor, you know. Did it out of desperation? And we did it out of desperation. And that's why. And some of them said to me, yeah, we were remorseful. We're remorseful. We didn't want to do it. Mm. We did it out of desperation. One guy said, as soon as I had an alternative to work for a foreign company, you know, which wasn't involved in the military occupation, I did. I changed. Mm. Yeah. You know, during your travels uh, and when you were going around with your fixers, uh, did you ever have... Taliban officials following you or watching what no, you're doing? No, not at all. No, 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 it's not like that. It's not like China or someplace like that. You, you're pretty you free get, to. You're pretty we free were to. absolutely free to do everything. And okay. um, I mean, my one of my my my, my translator was Shia. Mm. My fixer was Sunni. Okay. And um, my translator, Shia guy, would be going into the ministries every day, talking to the Taliban. He'd be having very frank conversations, with, and he'd been translating it to me with you know the foot soldiers. Mm. 
And the fact that he was a Shia wasn't a problem for them. They were hugging, they were kissing, they were mm. brotherhood. And I know the Taliban have been criticised for this by certain sectarian people. <laughs> like, why are, you, why are you being so soft on the Shia? Yeah, yeah. But uh, honestly, I think this is not a Taliban in the 1990s. Yeah, yeah. They're not going around whipping people. They're not going around, um, you know, enforcing Sharia law so strictly that they're alienating the population. They're not saying to terrorist groups... You can stay here if you want to attack the West, no problem. Mm. You know, they, they're, they're different and they're more experienced, they're more pragmatic. Some people might judge them badly for being that pragmatic. But ultimately, I don't think we should expect too much from the Taliban, from the new Islamic and We should not expect it to be the leader of the Ummah. Mm. What we should be doing is understanding the difficulties they're under and saying to ourselves, how can we help them? Grow as a nation. How can we? How can Muslims, in any meaningful way, support a country which is still with an administration that still has not been recognised by most of the world and is still referred to uh, as terrorists? Even, even, even though officially that word is not being used much, I think there was an MI5 chief that said that we need to be mindful not to refer to the Taliban as enemies anymore. Yeah. But the point I'm trying to say is that how can we, how can we, in light of CVE, in light of prevent, in light of um, state surveillance on Muslims, how can we meaningfully support Afghanistan? It's difficult because I think if you and me tried to send money to Afghanistan, it would be immediately flagged up. Our bank accounts would be closed down. Mm. So it's difficult. I think. Um, this is something I'm mulling in my head. Obviously, the obvious way is doing it through charities. And hopefully, Islamic Relief are there. But I don't think any other British Muslim charities are there. Mm. Um, and I think there will be. I know Umar Welfare Trust wants to get into the country. And others will follow. So that's an obvious way. Maybe do it through charities. But I think, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I haven't spoken to you about this. Mm. But I'm really thinking that we, as Five Pillars, a small business, mm. should employ an Afghan correspondent. Mm. But how do we get the money to that person? How do we get a good person for, for a start? You know, that we're not just like getting somebody rubbish and it's charity, but it's actually a two-way process mm. and there's dignity in work. But how do we pay him? Because are we going to get accused of supporting terrorists yeah, that's, that's if we pay him? So this is something that I'm mulling in my head. At the moment, Western Union is working, MoneyGram is working, but I have the feeling that if we try and go down that route, then um, it's going to get flagged up. But hopefully in the next six months, these questions may be resolved as, as the country gets recognised. But ultimately, Dilly, I think, I think as individuals, we can only do so much. I think the, the key to this is getting states, states. to recognise because they can unlock billions of dollars in funding. Okay, well now we're going into the geopolitics of it. Now, which state is going to recognise without America giving the nod? Because you've got because I remember you, while you were there, we were talking about likely candidates yeah. who would or should Iran, Pakistan, Russia, China, uh, Qatar. These are countries which we'd expect would probably recognise the new administration, but they're all kind of scared of US sanctions. Yeah. So, how hopeful should we be of the new Afghanistan under the IEA? Um, well, I think, as you say, America controls the world financial system. Was it $9.6 yeah. billion? Dollars, or is it? Is being frozen. Okay. Afghan assets. What money and is sanctions this? on the country. What money is this? I'm not sure, actually. Is yeah, it, it, a good it, question. Is, is it international aid? Because if, cause if America turns around and says, well, we're one of the biggest contributors to these international aid money, then we have mm. the right to freeze it. I can't it. answer that question. It's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to but the question. But it's $9.6 billion. Dollars. It's Afghan money. Everyone, everyone recognizes that. I'm not sure whether it was aid money okay. or money that was promised or money that Where's was... Where is this money being kept? It's abroad. Okay. Uh, yeah, in America, I think it is. Yeah, um, it's it's the assets are abroad. So I don't know. Obviously, the money is being frozen. Um, there's no trade. Most of the borders are closed, so there's no commercial flights or hardly any. 
So it's it's very very difficult. And aren't the Central Asian countries and Iran and Pakistan not trading? It's it's or is your black market? Stuff? I mean, the, I tried to get out during, through Uzbekistan, and the border was closed. Mm. Um, so I think I think most of these countries, like Pakistan, Iran, China, Russia, uh, Qatar, UAE, they would recognize they would recognize the Islamic Emirate tomorrow, mm. but they are scared of the Americans. The Americans, are, are, I mean, basically the Americans are trying to punish so, 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 so They lost, yeah. you know, and now they're punishing Afghanistan for losing. Fine, but you, you said that um, in a recent Facebook state is that I know that there's people out there that think that the Taliban struck a deal with the Americans or were in bed mm. with the Americans, right? Now we know there's a level of uh, a level of diplomacy, principal diplomacy that had to take place to yeah. be, to to get rid of the invaders and the occupiers, but sh- re- realistically, would it not be the case that the Taliban will still have to succumb to to some degree? Possibly, yeah. Why possibly? That's the reality, because they're the weaker party. You know, it, it's not. It wasn't no, no, that's between what, equals. Yeah, so that's what I'm trying to say to you. Why is it possibly and not definitely? Yeah, you mean like in terms of yeah, dealing like, with the Americans? Yeah, like definitely succumbing to w- what America needs to unfreeze that nine point six billion dollars. I think I think they are a principal bunch, you okay. know. So they're not going to cross Islamic red lines. If they say to them, "You Sharia law cannot be a part of your constitution," then that's a no go. And ultimately, these are people that are used to suffering. You know, they can take suffering like you and me can't mm. take suffering. Mm. Us like spoiled Westerners. Of course. They they can live hungry. They can live without. I mean, they were in the mountains for twenty years. But they won't give up the, in the mountains. But they won't give up the religion. You don't think no? they will not give up any Islamic red lines. But they will compromise in areas perhaps that um, they might need to. I mean, I mean, on the women's rights thing, for example. I mean, I don't think it's a personally. I don't think it's a compromise because you know I don't think Islam is against of women's not. rights. Yeah. But for them, it might be a little bit against their their code, no, their Pashtun Wali code. No, it might it might be. The version of women's rights that's trying to be forced upon them, surely. Yeah, I mean, look, they're desperate. They're absolutely desperate, and you know, the the, the threat to the Islamic Emirate is not a security threat. No one's gonna. There's no internal force within Afghanistan that can overthrow the Taliban, and there's no outside invader that's going to overthrow them either. But what is a massive threat to them is the economic situation, Fine. because so- ultimately. Afghans are going to get, they're going to blame the Taliban for it. So we're in a situation where Taliban have been here August, September, October, November. So coming to five months, mm. right? Uh, 9.6 billion of the nas- the country's assets is frozen uh, by the US. Um, people are dying of starvation and hunger and poverty. Um, countries are not going to recognize them until US gives the kind of nod or tacit approval of it. That sounds bleak. It is bleak. I mean, they're half recognizing them. I mean, the UAE, I think, will shortly open an embassy in um, in Kabul. So is Japan. They've done it as well. The the um, the European Union is dealing with the Taliban. Even the British are dealing with the Taliban. But this is unofficial. Unofficial. unofficial it's yeah. not official yet. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. It's it's crumbs. It's crumbs. It's a bleak situation. Look, I'm, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. No, no. I guess I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that then that means we should be realistic about some of the things that we're going to expect from the Taliban as a result mm. of being in this very weakened position, surely. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and we shouldn't expect anything from them. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally, if they, if they survive for the next few years, that's an achievement, you know, simply because of the situation they're in. Economic catastrophe. ISIS-K, um, obviously, in order of things which are uh, affecting Afghanistan adversely, it would be economics and poverty. Yeah, yeah? absolutely. Then what? ISIS K? No, 
Small problem. Okay, but okay, but why is the ISIS K thing so blown up? Well, I think um, well, I think the West is blowing it up. The mainstream media in the West is blowing it up. I think. Look, for the past twenty years, Quickly, do people, every day, do people do people link ISIS K to India or America? By the way, no one knows where they come from. They they link it to Israel, to America, to India. Everyone that's Afghanistan's enemy at the okay. moment. Uh, but no one, it's a mysterious group. No one knows where it's come from. No one knows who's funding it. It's just very, very mysterious and fishy. But Jalalabad is possibly one of their strongholds. Yes, that's why there were so many choke checkpoints. Okay. That when I went to Afghanistan, I, I was told if I went anywhere else in the country, it wouldn't be like that. Uh, it was specifically because they had targeted. Yeah, I mean, are they a big problem? No, look, look for the past 20 years, thousands of people, or, or at least hundreds to thousands of people have been dying every day in Afghanistan because of war. Now, it isn't even dozens because of war. Not even dozens. So you're saying the ISIS-K threat is microscopic in comparison to the occupation? Yeah, of course. Okay. And, and the economic issues. Okay. No, um, I mean, there were a few attacks in Kabul when I was there. They didn't kill anybody, but there were a few bombs that went off. Um, and yeah, I mean, ISIS-K occasionally will carry out a deadly attack where maybe 50 people will die, but that might happen once every two months. Mm. So compared to the occupation and invasion, it's small. Okay. Uh, what's the status of the opium trade in Afghanistan? Because you know it's booming Not, under not the a story uh, I checked out, to be honest. Uh, any, com I, any conversation? I didn't go to Helmand or anything like that. Uh, and I didn't really ask those questions. So that's, that's a story that I missed, and it's something I can do next time. Now, bringing your trip to a close, uh, I know uh, you may be a bit peed off because I'm asking you this. Um, before you set off, and whilst yeah. you were there, your plan and intention was to visit Bagram. Yeah. Uh, why, didn't that, why didn't that happen? All right, so Bagram Air Base is the place where the Americans tortured loads of people, yep. sent them to Gitmo, and just a notorious it's uh, brother, prison. It's where our brother Muslim and, and, and Yes, Af and, and he, he witnessed a murder there, I think. Yeah, yeah Sister Afia as well. Yeah, so, all right, so I had permission to go. I, I was trying to get permission to go to Bagram for ages, mm. and I finally got it in the last week I was there, and I had two ex-prisoners who were tortured who said they would go with me. So, obviously, fantastic story from a journalistic Massive point of exclusive. view. Yeah, I didn't do it, and people will condemn me for this. But, um, yeah, my flight was cancelled out of uh, Qatar. Uh, sorry, to Qatar, because the Qataris and the Islamic Emirate had a bit of a tiff. Over. Basically, well, basically, I, I, I mean, there's no official reason, but the reason I think it was because the UAE planned to open an embassy in Kabul before the Qataris. And obviously, we know that the Qataris and the UAE are rivals. Mm. So I think the Qatar Airways or the Qataris said, we're not taking any passengers anymore mm. from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Kabul. And therefore, my flight got cancelled. And then I was told, oh, you might be in the country for another month, three weeks to a month, because you've got to get a visa for some foreign countries. There's no regular commercial flights. Then the ones that are going out are all full. Literally, you're looking at three, three weeks before getting out of the country. But I found a ticket to Dubai. Uh, and I never... Should I say this as well? I did, really did not want to go to Dubai. Yeah, because you're all about boycotting Dubai, aren't you? You know, I haven't told anyone um, publicly that I went to Dubai because... I believe that Dubai should be boycotted. I never wanted to set foot in that country again, but I realized that I was running out of money as well, Dilly. Mm -hmm. And you can't get money into Afghanistan very easily, you know? So I and was. Of course, we were working on a budget as yeah, well. Yeah, so I was. I, I planned for two weeks and I took money for two weeks and I literally was running out of money and I thought, 
I'm going to have to beg, borrow and steal if I stay here, you know, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So I took the flight to Dubai, um, which meant staying in the country just for about a week longer, not three weeks. Okay. Also, I needed to get back home uh, for various reasons, family reasons or whatever. So you didn't, want to, to you didn't want to risk getting stuck there for longer? So, yeah. So, and I was paranoid about COVID as well. I, I needed to take three COVID tests to get out of the country, okay? Everyone, no one cares about COVID in Afghanistan because they, they've, got, they've got more important things to worry about, you know, uh, like where the next meal is coming from. Everyone's got coughs and colds in Afghanistan. They're all coughing over you, you know, and when you're in a market, everyone surrounds you. You've been in those, like, of course, of you course. get a microphone, everyone surrounds you and they're yeah. in your face and stuff like that. So I must admit, I was paranoid about getting COVID. So the last three or four days, I spent it in my hotel, didn't do anything. I missed the, the Bagram story, which obviously I regretted. But I thought if I fail this test, I'm here for another three weeks with no money. And that's the decision I took. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. And um, you've been kicking yourself about it. Or you'd be, you're, yeah, you're I mean, to... obviously it's a huge story and I could have done so many more stories. You, like, stop, you, you, you asked me about the opium thing and I can't answer your question because, again, it's a story I could have done. Mm. There's so many different stories I could have done, uh, mm. which I didn't do. And inshallah, I'll go back and do that. Because you kind of... You, you kind of had a go at me for just asking whether you were going to go or not. No, no, that's because I, I told a few <laughs> other, I told a few other people, and uh, they were all giving me a hard time over it. And then you come along and ask me the same question, so I snapped a little bit. Okay, fair. <laughs> Apologies. Enough. Right, um, no apology accepted. I only asked because you said you were going to go. That's why. Yeah, I really wanted to go. Um, you know, you some of your statuses that you and tweets you were saying Islamic Afghanistan, Islamic mm. Afghanistan. Um, how Islamic is Afghanistan? It's a mixture. I mean, I, I, the reason why I call it Islamic Afghanistan is because obviously we have someone, a, a movement in power now that wants to, has the intention of implementing Islam in all areas of life, even though they're going slowly about it not to antagonize the population. So that's why I called it Islamic Afghanistan. I, I didn't mean that there was no Muslims in Afghanistan prior to the Taliban. Mm. You know, some people took exception. Even people that support the Islamic Emirate, they were saying to me, you know, we were Muslims beforehand as well, mm. you know, and uh, yeah, that's the reason why I call it. How Islamic is it? I think, I think, um, all right, for example... And you've been to many Muslim countries. All right. Many. The, the deep tradition of secularism that we find in certain countries, Turkey. without naming them, okay. even Iran to a certain extent, you know, uh, that there's a deep tradition of secularism in Iran, despite the fact that it's it's had an Islamic state for mm. 40 years or whatever, you know? Um if, for example, the Taliban said, um, you don't have to wear the hijab, most Afghan women would still wear the hijab. You know, some of them might wear it a bit loosely, and I saw those women wearing it. Certain areas, posh areas of Kabul, they had very loose hijab. I think I saw one woman in my whole time there at the airport who wasn't wearing hijab at all. And even she had a little debutter, and she's putting it on and off. And nothing was happening to her. No one was, you know... So how Islamic is it? I think in Kabul, as I said, it's a very mixed liberal society. I think in the country areas, I guess the question, run, their lives revolve around Islam. I guess the question I'm going to ask you, how Islamic can we expect it to be? Especially its finance and its fiscal policies in such a difficult That's situation. That's the most difficult thing to do, I think. Yeah. Even like a country like um, Iran, which prides itself on its independence, it's still being blackmailed economically by the West. And it still wants to enter the Western financial system, you know? I still wants to and do the dollar. And usury is part of that system. Yeah. So I think ultimately they've, they've got us all by the balls. Mm. Sorry to use that terminology. No, that's fine. But literally the West has got us by the balls financially. 
And this is their Trump card. That's why every country that says we're not going to use the dollar anymore, or or they, they get invaded. Mm. You know, they, that's literally what happens. Invaded. That is the that is the red line for America when you challenge the US dollar. Um, now, obviously, this trip trip was made possible. Obviously, I was supposed to join you for this trip, mm. uh, and it wasn't possible. Why didn't you go? Because uh, oh, yeah, 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 I know. You land <laughs> you landed six hours after the the uh, birth of my newborn, so yeah. and it was very tight. But obviously, the trip was made. Uh, it was it was it was possible because of the generosity of our donors. Yeah, uh, and and Alhamdulillah, the the, the generosity of the Ummah, our readers, our supporters, who made this trip possible. Um, what would your words be to those who support us, who want to support us, who are sitting on the fence to support us, that this was just mere one assignment and that we mm. do, we at more such assignments can be done if the money's there? Well, I mean, first of all, Jazakallah I mean, first of all, all praise to Allah that I got there. You know, when, course, I, when I literally, I never thought I'd make it to Afghanistan. You know, I've been to over... I think I counted on the plane on the way back. I've been to 23 Muslim countries in my life. And alhamdulillah, I think that's more than most people mm. in the world, you know? Mm. And, um, but I never thought I'd make it to Afghanistan. I'm not sure why, but I just thought it'd be too hard to get in. And I, I didn't really want to go there during the occupation as well, you know? I just didn't want to go there. Um, and when I got there, it was, I was just, I was just so grateful and honoured to be there. And first of all, of course, I give, I give thanks to Allah Of for course, that. 100%. But the fact is, we went there with donors' money. Of course. And we would not have been able to go there had not Five Pillars been funded by ordinary Muslims. And I think it's a fantastic... All the feedback I was getting, alhamdulillah, it was 95% positive. People were amazed that I was out there in, reporting independently. And it was so great because whenever I've been to Muslim countries in the past, I've been working for big organizations like Al Jazeera or Press TV. Mm. And there's always been some red lines. You know, I've always got to be checking with my bosses in, you know, it was, it was in, uh, in Doha mm. or Tehran at the time, mm. you know? You know, is it okay to do this story, interview that? Is the editorial line fine? I was literally free to report what I wanted to say go where I wanted to go. I, I was, it was, it's all from my own brain, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And the liberation of doing that was absolutely amazing. And I must have been the first Brit in many years to just wander around markets, wander around the streets, no protection, no security, just a fixer, just a translator with me, talking to ordinary people. Because when Brits, you know, go to Afghanistan in the last 20 years, it's been with guns. Mm. And when they've, when they've lived in Kabul, they're living behind high walls, loads of security. Whereas I was just wandering around freely. Um, and no animosity. When they, when, they, when they heard that I was from London, zero animosity towards me as well. Now, obviously, the trip was about three weeks, uh, and we total up the budget. Uh, mm. The trip cost around about £5,000. £5,000. Now, in terms of you were able to go for three weeks, that was flights, accommodation, another flight, uh, food, survival, fixer, translator, uh, translator visas, uh, visas and, and costs, everyday costs just to get things done. Yeah. yeah? That's a tiny budget for a three-week assignment. Well... Basically, that would be 20 grand for a bigger organization. Exactly. At the very least. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd be going there with a cameraman. You'd be going there with, with backers. You went there on your own. You produced practically nearly a video every day, every yeah. other day. Exclusive content. Three weeks. It cost us about five grand. Brothers and sisters, friends, you know, donors. Russia went for three weeks. Three weeks. And it cost us five grand. 
I remember when we sent um, our brother from Australia to cover uh, the Christchurch. Yes. That cost us two grand, right? So look at the kind of budgets that we're working with and the and the content that we're delivering. Yeah. So it gives you an idea that if we had a bigger budget, the quality and the quantity of such assignments would be more surely. I think we need to do at least a couple of those big assignments Definitely. every year. Definitely. You, like, like you that, and me. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Now you came back from Afghanistan and as your trip was coming to an end, you started having a pop at um, <laughs> Afghan diaspora community, those who collaborated in various forms for the US and the occupiers. Yeah. Um, and... I mean, how fair is that to say? I mean, you weren't in these people's situations. I mean, we're not talking about the open collaborators, those who literally welcomed the Americans and the Brits with open arms. Mm. We're talking about those who maybe had to collaborate out of Mushkila, who were scared of the Taliban, who actually believed that the Americans and the West were better for their country than the Taliban. I just think the Muslim world is full of collaborators. Unfortunately, that's the conclusion I've come to. Of course. And, is- and, you know, the West would not be able to invade and occupy and sustain that occupation for so long in our countries were it not for the legions of collaborators the West that are queuing up to help them. Britain and France wouldn't have been able to defeat the Ottomans yeah. without the collaboration of the Arab tribes at the time. And I think we just, we just have a... We give them a free pass. And I think, um, I mean... Obviously, there are a few other Muslim countries I've reported on during occupation, like Iraq. You know, literally, Iraqis queuing up to collaborate with Americans. Even Palestine, unfortunately. The Israelis would not be able to... I mean, there's a lot of resistance in Palestine, you know. But but ultimately, there's loads of spies and collaborators as well. Same in Kashmir? Unfortunately, yeah, and I think I think there's there's different levels but that of was a, collaboration. But, but that was a twenty that was a brutal twenty year occupation, Roshan. Surely there would have been some circumstances where maybe you would have given some husna done. Surely. Well, I think I mean first of all, most Afghans did not collaborate, you know, and they resisted. They they either didn't collaborate or they they actually resisted. What's the status? And they of, fought the occupiers. What's the status of the, the Northern Alliance, the former Afghan army? They don't army? exist anymore. They okay. don't exist anymore. The National Afghan Army, are there still soldiers there? No, of course not. Okay. No, they're all, they're all in, in the West now. So are, are, left. Are, are these the people you're talking about? No, all right, so there's different levels of collaboration. So let's there talk- is, all right, so the lowest level is just um, people that work, let's say, in admin roles for the Americans. Okay. And they might have worked at Bagram Airbase, but literally just admin, maybe translating some something like that. Um, some may have kind of um, taken American money for projects. Let's say, for example, even building hospitals or building whatever. So there's that level, but it was American money. It was occupation money. Then I guess there's more serious levels of collaboration where they're actually you know, helping the machinery of occupation government work. And then there's the highest level of collaboration Which where they're funny. literally fighting fellow Afghans, calling them. in airstrikes to kill people and so yeah those are the different levels of, so, so of let's, collaboration so, so let's forget about the top two levels because those top two levels I think most would agree yeah uh, most people would f- find it unforgivable mm. for that level of collaboration but let's talk about let's talk about the average Afghan who worked in an admin position at Bagram well they, the Taliban have forgiven them okay. the Taliban have forgiven them so why haven't you for, have why, why, why haven't you forgiven them because I think that, the, as I said to you before, the reason why the West gets away with the stuff it gets away with is because of those low-level collaborators. And I think we have to have a zero-tolerance approach. I mean, look, I think ultimately, if the Taliban took a zero-tolerance approach 
to every single person that collaborated at a low level, they would be they'd be arresting hundreds of thousands of people and jailing them. Mm. And tactically, that's a bad idea when they're trying to win hearts and minds. But I think as a general principle, Muslims should have a zero tolerance level, uh, sorry, um, zero tolerance attitude towards collaboration of any sort whatsoever. And people who collaborate need to know there will be consequences for their collaboration. Because ultimately it's treason. Mm. You don't have to be a Muslim or, you know, you can be a non-Muslim and realise that the biggest offence you can commit against your old country is to aid and abet foreign invaders and occupiers. It's very simple. Of course. Okay, so... so uh I want to posit this to you, and I'm not going to mention any UK charities. There are some Muslim charities in the UK that when the first wave of Afghans that were fleeing uh, Afghanistan when the Taliban came to power uh, in August, um, there was a, a, an attempt or an effort, and the conversations are still ongoing, mm. how to support these new Afghan migrants. I wouldn't migrants. support them a penny. Okay, so we have to assume that the vast majority of those, that wave of migrants were either those who collaborated. Were, and their families. And their families were interpreters, were admin workers, or just opportunists that wanted to come to this country. Would you say to Muslims to err on the side of caution? Absolutely. I think, I think what's going to happen is the intelligence services are going to be, they're going to be um, looking at those Afghans coming over who've mm. already betrayed their own nation for money. And they're going to be you know, basically asking them to infiltrate mosques in the Muslim community. So, yeah, I mean, I'd, I think it would be wrong for me to cast aspersions over all of them, but because a lot of them will be families and kids, you know, who didn't do anything wrong. You know, they just happen to be married or the, the children of these collaborators. Um, but I think we should, we should have our eyes open. It's like in the past and even now, do you remember when like all these white converts were kind of coming to our mosques and asking us about jihad? <laughs> what do you think about Al Qaeda? <laughs> you know, come on. And we would go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And having like conversations with them. Yeah. Nah. You know, and then we, they end up wearing wires and stuff like that. Um, Uncle Manoush Farooqi's case being one part yeah, one of the we've men. got, we can't be taken no, for monkeys anymore. Really, I mean, you know, yeah. we have to have skepticism without being completely un-Islamic by casting aspersions. I mean, I would say to our viewers and listeners that look, if there is uh, an individual Muslim family uh, whether they're Afghan or, or Iraqi or whatever they may be and, and they are going through genuine difficulty as an individual family they happen to be your neighbour live on your street I don't think there's anything wrong mm. supporting them on that capacity I think there should be a level of caution as a coordinated effort as a collective as a community to help a new wave of migrants who let's be serious at least a, a, a significant portion of them Colluded with the occupiers and the invaders. MI5, they target immigrants yeah. because immigrants are vulnerable mm. and they'll do anything to stay in the country mm. and they'll ask them to spy. Okay. Right. You heard it, folks. Keep an eye out. Um, bringing the podcast to a close, uh, last week there was the tragic incident of uh, 27 uh, mainly Muslim uh, asylum seekers that had died mm. uh, when the, the boat capsized in the English Channel. Um, I say the majority of them because the majority of, I mean, I think it was Ayan Institute done a fantastic piece of research speaking about the Muslim refugee crisis. Because let's be honest, the vast majority of refugees in the world today come from Muslim majority countries. Comes as no surprise because the countries which are targeted for war and occupation and economic sanctions and destabilization happen to be Muslim majority countries. Mm. But then you'll have your Kens, you'll have your Bobs and your Karens who be like, these people are coming over to our country 
and they're complaining about living in motels and hotels and having uh, microwave meals. Um, what would your what would your th- what are your thoughts on people complaining about the migrant crisis? People coming from countries that essentially are countries which this country waged war against. Well, it's obviously blowback, isn't it? You know, if um, if Britain and America didn't invade and occupy other countries, whether it's Libya, you know, kind of Iraq. Yeah, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, many other countries. Because um, most of the migrants... And even economic sanctions, like Iran, for a lot, a lot of refugees are from Iran. from Iran, yes. And there's been four years of economic sanctions on Iran. Mm. You know, so it's not just... I mean, I mean, I would say the economic terrorism is, is just as bad as the war and the occupation, really, in many ways. Anyway, this is the reason why the refugees are coming here. They're not coming here for the weather. Mm. They're not coming here for the, um, you know, the egalitarian society or whatever. Mm. Uh, obviously, it's a rich country, you know, compared to their countries, and you can you can make a living here. Um, so they're coming here for economic reasons, and so it doesn't surprise me. But I think the other point that I want to make is that you know that there are millions of people want to leave Afghanistan, unfortunately, and this breaks my heart that the brain drain of people that um, are queuing up at the borders to leave, desperate to leave. Everyone I met, they had a plan. Any, I mean, a lot of people were so dirt poor that it wasn't even on the agenda leaving. They couldn't leave. But the ones that maybe had an option to leave, yeah. they were they had a plan B to leave. I mean, we also remember, and, and this also about the Syrian refugees, Afghan refugees, refugees that come from the Muslim majority countries that managed to make it to England mm. or, or the West. That means they had some level of savings or access to yeah. money that the, that, yeah. that the absolutely poor and destitute did not have access to. No. Now, for them to even leave their country wasn't even an option, no. right? So I guess what I want to say is, uh, or I want, what I wanted to get from you is that are white European Western folk in any position to take the moral high ground about the migrant crisis? Well, I mean, white European Western, I mean, they're a bit thick, aren't they? I mean, a lot of them are. And <laughs> no, but they are. I mean, obviously we live in a very kind of, um, you know, privileged position. Russia, Russia can say that he's half white, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> No, but but we live in a... Look, this is one thing that I think Muslims in this country, we have an advantage in many ways because not only do we know this country very well, the history of the country, the language and whatever, but we also know the history of back home and Mm. geopolitics and whatever. And your average white English guy doesn't know that, you know? So that's why I'm thinking, why why are we so like on the defensive when we're in debates with... We're actually more clever than these people. No, but the the issue is that there's a large constituency of of people who have that very binary, simplistic uh, mindset and that they literally do see... Kurds and Afghans and Syrians coming over to take the benefits and their jobs. But they also know that they, many of their sons went off to invade these countries. Yeah, yeah. They know that they voted in many of these uh, uh, governments that, that Well, these war. Kurds and Afghans, when they come over here, I mean, they're working so hard doing all the jobs that the white people don't want to do. Mm. It's not as if they're coming over here and becoming millionaires, mm. you know, off benefits, off state benefits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, look, I mean, it's like, you know, I suppose any any nation will want to protect its borders to a certain extent. From people and from, will not from, want, from peoples whose countries you've invaded? Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, now, what I'm trying to say is that any country will want some kind of controls on people that are coming in. But, yeah, given that you've invaded these countries and occupied these countries and devastated these countries, made them poor, mm. and we've become rich at their expense, mm. 
you know, it is a bit hypocritical. Yeah, so I just want like a 60-second monologue to, to the Karens and the Bobs out there, yeah? Well-meaning people, hard-working British folk, maybe not, who think that you can take a moral high ground when they're human beings that are trying to cross the channel to reach the British shores. Let me tell you something. If Britain, America and other Western countries did not invade, did not occupy, did not support brutal dictators, did not apply economic sanctions, then these people would not be trying to live the torment and the, the state of their countries that the West has left either through modern wars or through colonialism. Mm. And that's the fact of it. My grandparents wouldn't be here if they weren't called here by the British government to rebuild this economy after World War II. And you're right, they didn't come here for the world. They came here to work, make a bit of money, send it back to their family, but they decided to settle here. I think people need to just be very mindful not to take that moral high ground because fundamentally we are part of a country that invaded other countries, that went to war based on, a, on false testimony and evidence, and we killed a million people. So when those same people from those same countries are trying to now come here, I don't think we're owing them anything. We're not doing them any mm. favours. I think it's the very least we can do. I think. And I always say that Britain's success, you know, and there are successful things about this country. We, are, we know that it has strong institutions, there's 100%. less corruption than anywhere, but all those good, even the democracy to a certain extent. But, you know, all that success has been built at the expense of people in Asia and Africa. From blood money. You know, we literally raped and pillaged their countries, devastated their countries, and that's how we became rich and how, how, how Britain developed its institutions 100%. over hundreds of years. 100%. Uh, bringing, uh, last question, do you plan on going back? Yeah, I really want to go back. I mean, I've got a six-month multi-year entry visa. I've got a one-year work permit, so I think it'll be a shame to um, waste that. So, um, inshallah, I, Afghanistan is the kind of country I think you keep going back to. I mean, there are some Muslim countries, like especially the Gulf countries, <laughs> I wouldn't care if I never went back. But uh, <coughs> Afghanistan, I think... I think going there, I think I feel a bit of a duty okay. to the people there mm. um, to invest in it somehow, to help build it. And ultimately, we've seen Islamic, so-called Islamic states over the last, in several examples of them, fail mm. because the Ummah didn't support them or because they were sanctioned or invaded by, by the West. I think we have a duty as an Ummah to make sure that Islamic Afghanistan does not fail but we can't expect too much of it. Let's not expect it to be at the vanguard of the Ummah, you know, fighting all those causes like the Uyghurs mm -hmm. and all these, you know, causes that are at the forefront of our minds. We have to help Islamic Afghanistan succeed and inshallah one day it can be maybe at the, the forefront inshallah. of the Ummah. Uh, just just, I, I, just only because you mentioned, did you get to speak to any off-the-record conversations about China and the Uyghurs? Yes, with Mr. Samangani, the, the deaf... I asked him on the record, and he gave a diplomatic answer off the record as well. They're desperate. They want... They, they know what the Uyghurs are going through. Mm. They know what um, Saudi Arabia is doing. They know what Russia is and the West is. But they're in a very weak and vulnerable position, you know? And um, they are the weak party, mm. you know? Even compared to other Muslim countries, they're incredibly weak. Of course. So they're being enforced into certain situations that they don't like, but they're weighing up the, the greater good. Roshan, Zakhlah for coming on today. It was wicked having a catch-up. Brothers and sisters, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed uh, today's podcast as much as I did. Um, it was uh, it was very it was quite busy when Roshan was away. We had lots happening here, and obviously he had a lo lots happening there. Uh, just a final message to our donors and our supporters: May Allah bless you all with the best in this life and the next for supporting our work, for making uh, assignments like the one Roshan just did uh, possible. Uh, the assignments that we did to Christchurch. Uh, 
made possible. Um, we want to do more of these. We we want to aim to at least do two a year. Um, Five thousand pounds for a three week assignment. Realistically, that's not the type of budget we should be going abroad with. It's not. We need more money than that to produce better quality content consistently quicker. Um, so I encourage you all to please support Five Pillars in whichever financial capacity that you're able to. If you like this podcast, please like this video, share it, leave a comment, subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. And of course, you can find us on all the major audio platforms. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Blood Brothers Podcast, Five Pillars Production.